0: Hey everybody, welcome to the latest episode of Unstoppable with me, your host Kerwin Ray. And today we talk to Janine Shepard. Now this woman is the epitome of unstoppable. She was a former national ski champion who had a future as an Olympic athlete, but her life was cut short by a tragic accident. She was hit by a truck, also on a training exercise, and after numerous operations, her determination and ultimate recovery defied the medical odds that were stacked against her. And this turned out to be just the beginning of her remarkable comeback. Her story has been featured on 60 Minutes and This Is Your Life. She's authored six books, first of which became a feature film. Her TED Talk has been viewed almost two million times. This is a story you do not want to miss. Janine Shepard is unstoppable. Listen up. So, ladies and gentlemen, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome Janine Shepard. Janine, thank you so much for coming.
1: Oh, it's my absolute pleasure.
0: <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, most people – look, I'm going to assume that there's got to be a lot of people who know your story because, you know, I'm one of the people who's, who's kind of followed from afar for a number of years. I've heard your story so many times. But for those people who don't know the Janine Shepard story, what is – what? give us the version. What is it? The Janine the Machine. The, the, J- the Janine <laughs> the Machine. Oh, I like that.
2: Well, you know, it's funny uh, – I guess I went to ground for a long time so and I, of course I now live in the USA so I sort of Whereabouts is, you
0: know, the I didn't know that actually. Yeah, Whereabouts in the yeah, USA are you living? Come and visit. Absolutely. I live
2: in the craziest craziest place. I live near the Rocky Mountains in Wyoming. Oh. I live in a little cabin in the snow surrounded by bears and moose and all sorts of
0: That crazy sounds animals. majestic.
2: <laughs> animals that can actually eat you. Yeah. Not just bite you, but Yeah, right. eat you. It's crazy.
0: That sounds fantastic. So how long have you been over there? I
2: mean, I've been there for four years now. It's part of this, inc- you know, incredible crazy story of mine, which is just showing up and saying yes to life and opportunities, and that's where I found myself.
0: I love that. So for, let's go back to the beginning. You you started off. I want to say you started off your life as a professional athlete, but you you started off. Uh, where did you tell us the story? Start from the beginning.
2: Yeah. Well, I've always, you know, I'd always been an athlete. Yep. And I, you know represented um, state level and national level at track and field and triathlons and, you know, all sorts of sports, but found myself at the age of, you know, early 20s in cross-country skiing. And I felt like I'd found my sport, you know, because I was, you know, this endurance athlete and I could just go forever. And cross-country skiing is the toughest aerobic sport in the world is that right oh you know i was like wow this is mine this is it and and we there was this great change in cross-country skiing that went from uh what they call classical technique to skating which required enormous strength and that was for me and so i was on top of the world you know i was um, in the australian ski team i'd been overseas skiing and racing and i was approached by the canadian ski team coach with an offer to join up with their team preparing for the 88 Winter Olympics in Calgary. and
1: Hang I was, on, you were going to yeah.
0: defect to Canada?
1: No,
2: no, no. I Ooh. was actually, no. He actually, he said to me, come and train with our team in the lead up to the Olympics. So I would still represent Australia. Gotcha. But I would use all of their facilities oh, in the lead up. I know. See? That's amazing. And so I, you know, my goal was to really do something that no one had done before. Uh, this was, you know, before Australia had ever won any, Any Winter Olympic medals. So I really wanted to put Australia on the map and to show the world that this Aussie could ski. And that's where I was on top of the world, you know, my whole life. So this is
0: 87. Is this, and this is 86. 86, right? You know,
2: I was preparing for the 88 Winter Olympics in Calgary.
0: Right. And then what happened?
2: So then I was on a training bike ride with my teammates in the Australian ski team, and we were riding from Sydney to the Blue Mountains. Really grueling ride. We did it um, a couple of times a year. We called it the Rooster Ride. We would all ride up there skiers and cyclists
0: that sounds like a pretty grueling run
2: it was incredible but i loved it because i love the hills yeah right right so we'd been on our bikes around five and a half hours and that's when the moment that my life changed i was hit by a speeding truck yeah, and suffered extensive and life-threatening injuries <sighs> i actually don't remember that day
0: really mm. so the whole day is completely blacked out
2: I just remember the very early on in the morning, I know that I got up and right. said goodbye to mum and set off with my friends.
0: Irrelevant details were you hit head on from the side, from behind? From behind. behind. So, it wow. was, so I,
2: was, I was up off the seat of my bike up a hill looking up into the sun and a speeding truck ran into me.
0: At what speed was he doing roughly today? He mean? was
2: doing eighty, about 80K. Wow. Uh, yeah
0: and so it gives us the checklist what was broken what was probably I'm going to assume there's probably less broken inside you than was actually still together
2: well yeah i broke my neck and my back in six places i broke uh, five ribs on my left side my right collarbone my right arm some bones in my feet head injuries internal injuries massive blood loss that was and the bones weren't going to kill me the blood loss I had yeah. internal bleeding i lost about 5 liters of blood which is all someone my size would actually hold and they didn't think i'd survive but the interesting thing is that the reason i don't remember is that i left my body and for 10 days i had what i call my death experience not my near-death experience yeah right I, i was out of my body
0: did you actually did you ever die on the table did the heart stop
2: well, I'm not sure whether the heart stopped. Right. They were pumping blood into my body. They so they where was
0: the accident? It okay, was...
2: That was in the Blue Mountains. Okay. So they uh, the Westpac so they first airlifted the, you. They airlifted me from the small hospital in Katoomba. Yeah. And the interesting story about that, which I only just found out about, I recently caught up with the first responder at the scene of the accident. His right. name was Gary. So he turned up and they saw me on the ground and he said, She's not gonna die on my watch. So they got me to the hospital. There was a brand new intern from that had arrived from England. So I was in emergency and the, and Gary said to him, should we call the helicopter? And he said, no, she's not going to make it. She'll basically die at the hospital. So he went down and got his friend, Dr. Grasby, who was a senior doctor in surgery at the time and said, Grads, you've got to come and look at this girl. He came up, took over and said, right, I'm in charge. Call the helicopter, get blood flown up from Sydney. And, you know, had Gary, the first responder, not done that, I would have died then. So then the helicopter, they didn't think I'd survive that. And then, of course, into Prince Henry. And for 10 days, I was critical. And they told my parents, just prepare for the worst. Um, But I spent almost six months in the spinal ward.
0: And so for the first 10 days you were you re, you remember the first 10 days even though you weren't conscious?
2: Yeah, I remember being in and out of my body. I remember looking down at my body and thinking I'm not going back there. It was this really strong I mean, you know, I it took me years to try and understand this experience because mm. it, you know, I sort of devoured all these books on NDEs, near death experiences, trying to think, well, why, you know, what why is mine so different? And I it's something I actually don't talk about a lot cuz I think people think I'm, you know, She's a nutcase, but I what I've had I, an
0: NDE if it makes you feel any better. Know, you know, I had, I had you a stroke. A yeah, I know, right?
2: <laughs> so I didn't have the tunnel and the white light. Yeah. I went straight, I, I went to a room that was filled with books.
0: Nice. Mm.
2: And I remember seeing my life. It was like I was watching a movie of my life, the life that I would live if I chose to come back to my body. So I remember very clearly having the choice. I wasn't alone in this experience i was guided through this experience and i remember you know i was given a choice to go back to my body and i i i I kept thinking well i don't want to go back because i'm an athlete i'm not going back to a broken body a body that's you know with a disability but the really interesting thing is 10 days later i opened my eyes and i was back in my body and i was like
0: ripped off this is not what i ordered
2: (laughs) yeah this is not so there was confusion It took me a long time to figure out why I made that choice.
0: The choice to come back or the choice not to?
2: The choice to come back to my body.
0: But it sounds like you made the choice not to, but you came back anyway.
2: Yeah, so ultimately I made the choice to come back, you know.
0: Were there any periods in that early stages where you just wish you had died?
2: Yes, absolutely. Oh, yes. I mean, when I got home from hospital Mm. after six months, you know, in a wheelchair, plaster body cast, you know, I had a body that, I mean, I actually, people find this incredible. I'm I'm a paraplegic. <laughs> people say, but hold on, you're walking. You walked
0: in here. That's yeah. right.
2: So I'm a walking paraplegic. And that was back in the days when the word neuroplasticity didn't exist. So I've retrained my body to be able to walk. And what people don't realize about spinal cord injury is that usually it's not a complete um, severing of the spinal cord. There's right. usually some innovation going there. Yeah. So I was able to, you know, retrain my body, strengthen the muscles that I did have. Some of the muscles have taken over and the job of the ones that I don't have. And I've been able to walk, which, you know, I walk with a limp and some people uh, barely notice it. Um, but I, you know, have all the injuries that a paraplegic has. Except mm. that
0: I'm walking. Yeah, right. So, how long were you in the spinal unit? Did you say almost six months? Six months. So, you woke up, and what got you through those early days? Because it must have been it must have been dark. Like waking up as a you know, we go to sleep as a professional athlete in pristine prime, mm. super fit, fight fit condition, and then you wake up and you're covered in plaster, uh, barely able to move.
2: Well, the plaster came at the end, but in the you know in the beginning, I, I was so confused you know, and I was in so much pain. So I was in a lot of uh, pain meds for the for that. And then as time went on, I mean, I had incredible support from family and friends, incredible staff looking after me. And I think I just, I kept thinking, no, I'm going to be fine. You know, I'm they, they can't be right. I'm going to go home and go to the Olympics. <laughs> and it took a long time. It really took, I remember mm. the first time that they took me to the rehab in hospital and stood me up. I remember looking down at my legs and thinking, move, <laughs> move, why aren't they moving? Mm. And it was like this disconnect between my brain and, and my body and, um, you know, just I just didn't believe it. I just thought, no, this is the sort of thing that happens to someone else. So it wasn't really till I was home in my wheelchair um, and, you know, all of my friends had gone off skiing and racing and back into their life. That's really when, when it hit and when I suffered depression.
0: Yeah, right. So you went there, it got pretty dark. Really dark. Were you ever suicidal? Yeah, I think so. Right.
2: You know, I don't think I actually, I mean, I thought about it, I think, to be honest. I mean, a lot of us think at times, you know, I wish I wasn't here or is there any, when we're going through, you know, pain. Yeah. And so what I say is that I was definitely at rock bottom. Yeah, right. And there's a gift in that. There is a real gift in rock bottom is that it doesn't just show you who you're not it shows you who you are and
0: what was the defining moment where it started to turn around like was there was there an instant was there an insight was there a a thought or an experience where something shifted and then
2: i think i realized that i was in so much emotional pain you forget the physical pain i mean that was one thing but the emotional pain was so great that i realized something has to shift here you know something has to change and the only thing I could think of was to let go.
1: Mm. It's
2: like, that's it. My life is over. I have to sever that tie with, you know, who I was, which was the athlete. I was no longer the athlete.
0: So when you say let go, let go of that old identity, let go of that old Mm. sense of self.
2: Yeah. Let go of thinking that, you know, that I was this elite athlete. I mean, I had a body, I, you know, I was ripped <laughs> you know, and and I was really proud of my body. And mm. suddenly, you know, I had this body that I was really ashamed of. You know, I I had to I had to learn to use a catheter, you know, which I didn't talk about. And I you know, I had a body that I couldn't feel. You know, I felt like I couldn't be a woman, you know, I felt that, that you it just was one thing after another and really struggling to come to terms with that and the pain was so great that i thought i have to let go and letting go was this incredible gift
0: was there a moment when this happened or was it like a build up too
2: there was actually a moment i remember i remember in my room that i was just you know at the i didn't think i could get any lower and i remember one night actually in my plaster body cast, I remember crawling myself, pulling myself off my bed and falling on the floor. And I remember, you know, saying these words. I remember actually saying, okay, God. (laughs) I said, you either show me a way out of this or you show me a way through it. Because I didn't think, I didn't think I could do it. I didn't think I wanted to do it. You know, I I thought this is it. I don't want to be here. And I just let go. You know, I just said, okay, I'm going to trust. I'm going to just show me something. Help me through this because I can't do it on my own. And that was this moment of just, it was just like this moment of expansion where suddenly I realized I'm free. I don't have to get up and train. I don't have to be that person. I, I can start again. I can, I've got a clean slate and I had no idea what that meant or what I could do. You know, I couldn't even walk. But, you know, it was part of me knew that I had made this choice to come back to this body. Mm. I needed to find out why.
0: Did you start getting the sense that there was a greater purpose?
2: I always felt that. I always knew, you know, there was this sort of part of me that knew, okay, come on. You know, it was almost like this split personality. One part was saying, I want to give up. And the other part was saying, you know, you you know, you came back here for a reason. Yeah, right. You're going to find out why. N- this is where it starts. This is where the work starts.
0: It was Buddha who said, the greater the pain, the greater the awakening. Yeah. And it sounds like the, the awakening was tremendous. And so th- what happened next?
2: And, you know, the the thing is that the one thing we all have, you know, things that we're attached to. I was attached to my body. That's who I thought I was. Mm. So if there was one thing that could wake me up, that had the power to wake me up,
0: it's it's often the thing that
2: we're most attached to, right? So it was almost like, okay, I'm going to lose that. I'm going to lose the thing that I value the most and then you're going to really find out who you are. Mm. And when I let go, it was this incredible sense of now what? You know, now what? And that was, I had no idea what was going to happen, but that was the moment that changed my life. You know, it was then that I was sitting outside in my wheelchair and my plaster cast that an airplane flew over. And I just, I looked up and I thought, okay.
0: If I can't walk, I'm going to fucking fly.
2: You bet. (laughs) (laughs) Which is crazy because (laughs) I had never wanted to fly in my life. Really? Never. Furthest thing from my mind. It was sort of like now the seed was planted.
0: And was it just a normal plane or was it actually an, ac- an acrobatic plane? It
2: was just a little tiny light aeroplane. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah. And so what happened next?
2: So then I, I remember, you know, I, I said, Mum, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn to fly. <laughs> she was like, that's really nice, dear. Would you like another cup of tea? And it was crazy. And, you know, I, I did
0: This has got to be like seven months in at this point. This is this about seven, eight months in?
2: From my accident? Yeah. Yeah, it was only, I'd only been home for a few months from hospital. Right. So um, I was still in a wheelchair. And I, I, I didn't even know anyone that flew an aeroplane. So, you know, I said, pass me the yellow pages. You know, back in the days when there was no Google, <laughs> and I just had to get that book and open it.
0: And let your fingers do the walking. Yeah, that's out. right.
2: So, you know, I looked up F,
0: flying schools,
2: and I rang up a flying school and I said, hey, well, no, I, want, I want to know how you learn to fly. And, and that phone call changed my life.
0: No kidding. And so you, you're now an aerobatics pilot?
2: I, well, yeah, I mean, I'm an aerobatics flying instructor.
0: Not even just an aerobatics pilot, a flying instructor. Yeah,
2: teach people how to fly upside down. But at the first, you know, when I first went for that first flight, I mean, they had to carry me into the flying school. They had to carry me and lift me into an aeroplane. And I didn't even, I didn't have a feeling in my legs and my feet. So I didn't think I'd ever pass a medical, but I just knew I had to do this thing. It was like this, something was pushing me and driving me. And the first flight, you know, when the instructor took off over Bankstown Airport, and it was the most magical, joyful experience of my life. You know, I was like, oh my, I'm going to do this. You know, and I was.
0: Was you, it like an overwhelming sense of freedom almost? It was incredible. Yeah. Can you
2: imagine being paralyzed in a yeah. spinal ward and then flying an airplane?
0: Mm. It's like, I'm going to do this. And so, how long did it take?
2: Well, the crazy thing is that I started, um, well, I. couldn't pass the medical straight away so I started with a theory study but suddenly now I had a reason to get out of bed
1: yeah right you know
2: suddenly I had you You know I had a purpose I had a why so I started studying and you know I started then you know really throwing myself into my rehab mum used to take me I used to swim she'd take me to the pool you know I'd put me in the pool and I'd swim and that was free and then I'd practice my walking and do my exercises and months and months passed and i you know went for a medical and i i passed that there's a story funny story about that too i went for the medical and the doctor said you, you know that little test when you sit down and they get that hammer and they t- <laughs> tap you on the knee right well i i t- you know this is hilarious i don't have a knee jerk reflex yeah. right but i always said it's a really easy one to fake <laughs> so you know so don't tell anyone, or I'll know and it's you. <laughs> so I, you know, I passed my medical, and then I just that was it. I was flying every moment I could. Mum used to drive me out to the airport, and then I'd drive. You know, I got back behind the wheel and started driving, and that was another story, very funny. And so I finally got my private pilot's license, and then I learned to navigate, and I flew around Australia, and. Then I got my, um, unrestricted and then I went on and I got my commercial license, my instructor rating, my aerobatic rating. And well, I was working as a flying instructor within about 18 months after I'd left the spinal
0: ward. Wow. That's pretty, that's pretty fast.
2: It's really fast. Yeah. Yeah. I always say it's because I had, you know, that was, that was my life. Then. That's all mm. I had, you know, it was my purpose. It was my, why it was my getting out of bed. It was, you know, we need things to you know, we need goals, we need things to direct us.
0: Well, this is where one of the things I want to explore with you, you know, because one of the things that I've found um, incredibly potent in an individual's potential is their background and looking at where they came from. And that doesn't necessarily dictate where they're going to go, but uh, there's some really interesting um, correlations, that's the better word, um, especially when it comes to elite professional or elite p- performance people, elite sports people. But what I'm curious to know from you without necessarily planning any Cs, which I've probably already done anyway, is there's an enormous amount of mental performance, an enormous amount of a mental strength, agility, and determination that's required to, you know, let alone recover from an injury like this, but let alone 18 months later to be, you know, certified as a commercial, you know, flying acrobatics instructor, et cetera, et cetera. What are some of the things that you learned about yourself that perhaps other people could apply when it comes to dealing with, you know, situations that, you know, are beyond, what might feel like they're beyond your control, but they require a little bit of mental discipline and grit to get through?
2: Well, I've, you know, obviously I had that background as an athlete of yeah. being able to set goals. But I've seen amazing recoveries in people that haven't been, you know, high-level athletes that are still able to do that. And I think that, for, you know, one of the, the greatest um, – I guess ingredients in 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 having a resilient mindset is being able to reset your goals. You know, because when you have an accident, normally, you know, you can no longer do the things that you did before, and people mm. sort of can can sort of you know get thrown about and 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 sort of not know. You know, they ask the question, "Well, if I can't do that, who am I? What can I do with my life?" There's always something. It's really important I say when someone's had an accident injury because
0: you, you've got a saying that says you aren't you're not your body.
2: Yeah, you're not your body. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a matter of, to me, aligning with your values. Yeah, right. You know, saying, well, what's really important? What sort of a person do I want to be in life? And you might not be able to do the things you did before, but that doesn't mean that life can't be great. It can't be spectacular. You know, what it, What are the things that you stand for? So I think, you know, I still had that value set. You know, for me it was, okay, well, I can't go to the Olympics, but what can I do where I still value? You know, commitment and hard work and learning and curiosity and giving back and service and all the things that I value in life. You know, I'm just going to redirect them into something else. And I think that was, you know, the key for me to to really just say, well, these, you know, these are the things I value. I really value hard work. Um, I really value commitment. And um, so I just sort of channeled that into learning to fly instead of skiing and go to the olympics
0: so you've talked about the importance of having a reason the importance of having a goal you've got to have something to work towards but i'm going to assume that during that period as you were working towards thing there were plenty of obstacles that came up for you what are some of the mental hacks that you use to be able to because over... i'm sure there's got to be times where you've got gone, i can't fucking do this what the hell am i thinking what the fuck have i got myself into <laughs> <laughs> you know but then i i can't help but thinking on on the other hand there may have been another little voice that says well this is who you are like what I'm curious to know is like how how do you deal with that, that that voice in your head that sometimes tells you that you can't do it when you know you want to?
2: Well, my greatest mental hack is my mindset of loving the hills. And, you know, that's something that I teach people when I mean most of my my speaking is corporate speaking, and that's one of the one of my biggest messages is love the hills. And, you know, I often refer to that back to um have you read Scott Peck's The Road Less Traveled? Oh,
0: it's one of my favorite all-time classics. Great. I know. So- I know. So- we, we, yeah.
2: You know, I'm sure yeah. we've shared a lot of similar yeah. books together. One of my great all-time favorites too. So, he says life is difficult. Right? But as soon as you accept that life is difficult, then it's no longer difficult anymore. You know, so you're going to complain about the fact that life is difficult or if you're going to get on and solve the problem, mm. you know. And I think that you know For a lot of people, you know, that one of the greatest drawbacks that stops people from achieving all that they can be in life is a sense of entitlement, you know. shouldn't happen to me. Really? Who said? It happened, (laughs) you know. So just accept that and accept, and that's another big message too, you know, acceptance. it's, It's not resignation. Acceptance is really powerful. So when I was a kid, really young athlete, what happened is that I discovered very early on that when I went out training with my teammates, they always took the easy option. They always wanted to go and train on the flats. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Well, what if I tra- train on the hills? You know, what's going to happen then? And so I always took the hills. And what I discovered about the hills is that it didn't just make me physically strong, it made me mentally tough. Mm. And... I discovered that nobody else liked them. Ha, that's my edge. (laughs) Right? That's my edge. And an edge in life, an edge in business, you know, Mm. for business owners. You know, that's your edge. Take the hard option and embrace it. And and then I always discovered that, you know, every time I was over one hill, guess what?
0: There's another one. There's another one, right?
2: And so my mindset of that's one thing
0: you can count on, is the hills. Absolutely. They're
2: supposed to be there. You know, that's by virtue, by design. Grow. Embrace them. Yay, this is great. So I think my hack is that I've, every time I come up against something, I go, it's a hill. It's supposed to be there. I'm going to love it. I'm going to turn towards it. I'm going to lean into
0: it. I love that. You know, I had this session. I train, I train calisthenics and I've been beating myself up a little bit lately because I've just been, I've been not getting as much sleep as I need to. I've had a couple of injuries. So I haven't been able to train. Uh, and so I was just doing some failure sets today and max reps failure sets um, for a couple of exercises. <clears throat> And there was one exercise where I only got three reps out, and I, and I fail, and, like, and I said to myself, oh, for fuck's sake. And he goes to me, Kerwin, what you got to understand is that you just succeeded. He said, failure is the goal. Yeah. Failure is the goal. He goes, because that's what's required in order to become stronger. And, 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 and again, it's like sometimes you hear the same thing you know, that you've heard before in a different context, and it just all comes together. And I think in life, sometimes people expect it to be easy, and when it's not, they think there's something wrong with them, not realizing that the hills are there by virtue to give you the strength that's required to be able to tackle what's coming next.
2: I expect life to be hard.
0: Yeah,
2: <laughs> I expect it, so it's no surprise to me.
0: Yeah, you know,
1: I'm
2: like, yeah, that's how that's how it yeah. grows. It's supposed to be, and I know I made the choice to come back, and knowing that it was going to be hard. Mm. You
0: know, um, it's Buddha who said about life: life is life is pain, suffering is optional. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, maybe I just love pain. <laughs> hey,
0: a, I like a bit of pain. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with a bit of pain. So, um, okay, tell me so I'm I'm curious to know. Like that that's an incredibly powerful mindset. But how how would just a normal person apply that if they've never even going you know, considered thinking this way?
2: It's easy, make a choice. Okay. You know? I mean, you know, sooner or later you have to realize that <clears throat> that's a belief system. That's my belief system, right? And I choose that belief system. Sometimes there is no magic. Sometimes it's just I'm gonna make that choice. I'm gonna love the hills.
0: It's as simple as that. It's simple. Do you think there's a there's a process to loving the hills? Do you think it's something that can be trained into someone over time? Or do you think it you've either got it or you don't?
2: No, I definitely think it can be trained. It's a choice again. You know, it's just make you know what 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 choice you're willing to make. Life is all about choices. I chose to come back to my body. Mm. You know, what you know, I always say you you get to choose what sort of a story you create. What sort of story do you want to create in your life? Are you going to create a story of being a victim? Or do you want to create a story that uplifts and inspires? I know what I want to choose, mm. you know. And I know that people, you know, write to me, email me all the time and say, I'm loving the hills. And so they, they go out and they <laughs> run on the hills. I, I think it's a great exercise. Maybe you take your team out.
0: Oh, we actually smash them twice a week. We get our training. My trainer comes in twice twice a week, three times a week. Twice a week and smashes the hell out of these guys. So, yeah, maybe we should actually get used to do some hill runs. That's, not a, that's a really good idea. Go
2: out on the hills. Yeah. I mean, we used to do for cross-country skiing. We used to do hill bounding. So we'd put poles in it and you bound up a hill, right, with poles. Because yeah, right. once you bring your arms in as well, you're upping your oxygen uptake as well, you know, the workload. So I think it's definitely it's just a, it's a mindset that you develop. Like well, cultivate is a better word. Yeah. You know, you just sometimes it's that, you know, how do you eat an elephant?
0: One bite, one at, bite a time. at a
2: time. So just chip away at it. You but know? how
0: do you take that person who, they like, hate pain? Oh, I don't like pain. Oh, because, you know, you, you've got to admit, like, w- like, when I recruit, perfect example in business, right? Whenever I recruit, one of the things I'm looking for is a background and discipline. Mm-hmm. So either sports, competitive sports, competitive dancing, uh, you know, in, in gaming even. Like, ga- these kids on games, I swear to God, they can play for, like, 15 hours at a time. Because one of the things that I've learned, there was even Forbes magazine 1992 did a study of the top Fortune 500 CEOs for the last uh, like 20 or 50 years. And they found the top 5% of the top CEOs of the top Fortune 500 companies had a background in either military, martial arts or elite competitive sports. Mm. So I've seen the pattern and I've seen it when you bring people in like at a talent level. Like the people who stick are the ones that have this, this resilience. They have this grit. They have this ability to be able to push through when others can't um yet some people come in they're incredibly talented you know they know all the they've got all the right things to say they've got all the qualifications but the moment things get a little bit hard they just immediately want to check out mm. and you know w- you know as a business owner that's 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 like fucking terminal if you've got that psychology as a business owner it ain't gonna work but what what i do find interesting is there's always that small percentage of people who come in and go fuck i'm that person but I don't want to be that person. Mm. How do I become better? Well, you say to me, well, it's just a choice, but how do I choose to do things differently when I've done the same thing for so long? What would you say to that person?
2: How do do you eat an elephant? Yeah, one bite (laughs) at a time. I mean, you know habits. I'm sure you know a lot about habits and neural pathways and how we retrain our brain. I mean, yes, change is possible you know, we're not stuck.
0: It all starts with one rep, right? Mm. I just, okay, do one rep, just go yeah. and do one rep. Okay. Yeah. You've do, done one rep, now do two. You've done two reps. Okay. Now yeah. do three. So, it's yeah,
2: a, you know, and, it, and, and you're right. I mean, that word discipline, it's a, yeah. it's an incredibly important word. And you'll know from, um, the road less traveled that he talks about <clears throat> delayed gratification, mm. right? Which is so powerful. You know, I, I always look at people, I mean, have you, you know, about the marshmallow experiment? Oh yes. I, you know, yeah. great. All that stuff. So we Gee, we just, yeah, we do the same stuff, you know. And so you, maybe that's when you're, you know, when you when you're interviewing, maybe you can do a marshmallow experiment. Wouldn't that be interesting? That
0: would be actually. We should do that with a team. Yeah, just because most of these kids have probably never even heard of the marshmallow experiment, which is great. So yeah. that'd be great. Like yeah. film them. Yeah. Don't tell them. Leave the <laughs> room. <laughs>
1: yeah,
2: you know, I can either have one <laughs> now or two later. You know. So discipline is really, really important. I mean, my kids. I've got three kids, and they're all really highly disciplined. I think they've that's come from watching me as well because what we know that behavior is actually learned from those closest to you. Mm. So, Cohen, you're, you know, you are setting an example for all the kids that you're hiring by the way you're living your life, because um, that's how we learn to be resilient. And um, I don't know if you know the work of C.R. Snyder as well, who's done a lot of great work on hope. I've done a, you know, a lot of um, reading and and work um, in the research of hope and hopeful thinking and what, What's really interesting about that is that hope is not some wishy washy thing. Hope is actually a cognitive skill hmm. that they say comes from having goals, pathways, and agency. Huh. Goals, what I want in life, pathways, how am I going to get there, and agency, having the willpower to work. And what's really interesting about this, his work, is that he says we learn hopeful thinking, which is a part of. Resilience from those closest to us. Mm. So what I say to people is that if you want your kids to be resilient, right, cultivate those skills in yourself first because they're watching you mm. very closely.
0: You touched on something before about structure and, and and I think you even said discipline in the same sentence. How important is structure and discipline from your experience when it comes to building like resilience and and that grit, that ability to deal with pain?
2: It all comes down to, to discipline. I mean, I have a, a very disciplined life, but it's also something that you build upon. I mean, I mm. feel very um, grateful that I've had a background in, in sport because that's taught me, you know, to, that I've had to work hard, that I've had to put the effort in, that I've, you know, you have a training diary, you write it down, you go out and you do it. And I think it's also this, you know, it's a feedback loop. You know, you get the rewards, you know that it works. And so you keep doing it. And I think, you know, everyone's got their own journey. And for those that aren't getting what they want out of life, I think, you know, they have to go back and look at, well, you know, how am I living my life? What choices am I work, making? And is this working? If it's not, make a different choice.
0: Mm. How it's do never you, too late to start. How do you reward yourself when you're trying to build resilience in someone? Or how do you reward someone when you're trying to build resilience in someone without creating a level of entitlement? That's a good question. I'm
2: not sure about you know i mean how do i reward myself yeah
0: like if because you said you mentioned something about rewarding yourself before and i was like okay that's an important part of the process one that people either overdo or underdo Mm. they either reward themselves too much you know they go to the gym oh my god i went to the gym i'm going to go and have you know five pancakes to celebrate, <laughs> um, you know, overdo it or underdo it. You know, oh, I'm going to go and punish myself at the gym to try and create a body that I love, you know, which is essentially constantly looking in, oh, I've lost four kilos, but fuck, it should have been eight, you know, so they they under-reward. How, how do you yeah. – because this is one of the things that I've learned when it comes to motivation – is the importance of the reward system and learning how to not only motivate ourselves but motivating the others by understanding how to use the reward system in a healthy way to get people to do things, to be able to conquer and push through to build up the levels of resilience that perhaps weren't there previously.
2: Yeah. Well, it's
1: interesting, Are you
0: familiar but... with um, – uh, what's his name? Dan Pink's work. No. You're gonna love this. I'm gonna no, give you this book. Yeah. Okay. So Dan Dan Pink is a behavioral scientist who's essentially culminated the research of Carol Dweck. You're probably familiar with Carol yep. Dweck and growth mindset. Uh Chick Me Sent Me High and a number of other behavioral it. yeah, another and other behavioral experts and put it together in a number of different books. One of them which I think you'll find really interesting is Drive. Uh, the Surprising Truth About What Really Motivates Us. Mm. And, and he discusses intrinsic motivation versus I- extrinsic motivation. And he talks about how extrinsic motivation is where people are rewarded from external sources mm. uh, and it builds up this, this level of entitlement, entitlement yeah. this level of soft approach, this ability not to push through when things get hard because, you know, well, I can do or, or whether I get the reward or not, I guess it's not. But what's interesting is when they look at, they, they did some research, again, Fortune 500 companies very popular for research. Um, where they instituted uh, financial rewards across the board in a range of different organisations and they found in the first two to three weeks performance went up Mm. and then they found across the board after the first three weeks performance went down in Mm. 80% of the categories to levels below what it was previously before the – before the financial incentive was put into place, which indicated that extrinsic rewards are not only ineffective, they're actually quite destructive as well in a commercial sense. And then they started looking at the in- intrinsic drivers, which is, okay, how do you build intrinsic drive by looking at the the social aspects or the social acknowledgement or the, you know, the primal aspects and the, the acknowledgement of the behaviors that we're looking for. So rather than actually rewarding people with, you know, with things, yeah. reward them with social acknowledgement towards the behaviors that you want to see more of.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it, with rewards and and just how, you know, I'm, I'm really fascinated with how our brains work, mm. you know, why two people can behave differently, you know, they can have the same thing happen to them, yet they'll have different outcomes, you know, what really contributes to our well-being and, you know, what I find really fascinating because I'm, you know, I'm a great fan of Barbara Fredrickson, you know, who does, you know, are you sure of her, her work? So she's a... Um, um, she, she's one of the sort of founders or leaders in positive psychology. Oh, right. Yeah, of course. She talks a lot about about a lot about positive emotions. Yeah, right. And how the broaden and build theory, which is, you know, how we have to balance, you know, we can't never have a negative emotion, but all we have to do is make sure that, you know, we're we're sort of um, skewing it from more positive over negative yeah. because that increases, it's a broaden and build. So we know that, for example, when we have positive emotions, when we really work on that, that we are more creative. More productive, better leaders, happier—you know those sorts of things. Um, So I, you know, I really love the theory of 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 cultivating positive emotions Mm. because we know that ultimately that's better for our well-being and gives us more joy in life. I'm also a great fan of the work of Matthew Ricard, you know, who the he was the French monk, Buddhist monk, and he has a really great um, some really great research around. what they did, they had two test groups and one group, they were both given money. So one group was told to go out and spend the money on other, on other people and the other group was meant to go and spend the money on themselves, you know, and, and what they found is that the group that spent the money helping other people right, had um, higher levels of flourishing that lasted longer. Mm. So, you know, knowledge is everything. Knowing that this is how our brains work, that actually we're wired for connection we're wired to help other people. You know, this is how, this is what creates these levels of, you know, well-being and flourishing. And so cultivate those things in yourself. Go out there and do the things that, I mean, I always say go out there and, and, and help someone. Mm. You know, Zig Ziglar said you can have anything you want if you help
0: someone else get what they want. If you just help enough other people get what they want and you can have anything. You
2: know, yeah. I mean, sooner or later you work it out. You know, you work out what works.
0: Is that one of the reasons you got into flying instructing as a way of helping other people whilst helping yourself at the same time?
2: You know, the funny thing about flying, I think flying saved my life. You know, it gave me something. It showed me that, um, you know, I can do this extraordinary thing. You know, Mm. I might have a body that doesn't work properly, but look, hey, I can fly an airplane upside down. I think the part of helping other people is really where I stepped into speaking Mm. and, you know, I... Wrote my first book and then I got on the speaking circuit. Is this defiance?
0: That's my sixth book. It's your sixth book. Oh, my God. No wonder you're in a cabin in <laughs> Wyoming. You're writing books.
2: Well, that book was written… Um, because, you know, my, my books had been published in Australia and New Zealand. But what was not, it? So not the not first worldwide. book, what was it called? The first one was Never Tell Me Never.
0: That was the one that the movie was made yeah, of. That's yeah, that's right. right.
2: Claudia right. Carbon plays me in the movie. So a lot of people know that book. But that's only a she's small… Hot. She's so
0: really, hot. Really, like, like, she did really. I know. I really, I know. looking…
2: Well, right, let me tell you that I can let you in on a little secret. Yeah. We are. I have someone writing a screenplay for this book now. Stop it. Seriously.
0: You're like a big deal.
2: Stop it. You're such I, a big deal. No. Well, look, I have a message. I have a message, but we have someone in mind to play me for this.
0: Me? Could you do that? <laughs> Look, you should see him in a skirt. Timmy looks better, though.
2: Okay, what about yeah. if I told you? Now, of course, she's really busy, but she's an Aussie.
0: Margot? Yes. Stop it. Yes. Wow. Wouldn't
2: that be great? I reckon she could do it. She plays I, So, Margot, if you're listening. Margot,
0: Margot, come on. Come on, Marg,
2: board. Come on, board. Yeah, She probably
0: hates being called cool, Margot. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not going to work. She's brilliant. We love her. Yeah, right. So,
2: really, there's so much more to this story. You know, people who know that... My accident and that part of the story. Yeah. I don't know the rest of my story, which was, of course, my uh, marriage broke down. I was a single mum for 10 years. I lost my house. I, you know, so did so you have the kids
0: before the accident?
2: After. They after the accident? Yeah, they didn't think I'd have kids.
0: Wow. So you even went on to have the kids after the accident. Yeah. Then the marriage broke down. Yeah. How long after the accident did the marriage break down?
2: Mm, so I was married for 13 years. Yeah, right. And then early 2000. And then I was a single mum with a disability for raising three kids on my own for wow 10 years. It was. Probably one of the toughest things i've ever had to do and
0: i'm a single dad to one
2: i know
0: and i i i i am medically disabled (laughs) (laughs) but not to the not not to the extent that with the injuries you've had but like just dealing with one is tough like the fact that you did three congratulations that's huge i was brought up by a single mom so i have enormous levels of yeah, respect and empathy for anyone who, who who did that. So how old were the yeah. kids when you...
2: So they were like three, six and nine. Yeah, right. So, yeah, and that was, um, I always say it was actually tougher than my accident. I, I was going to
0: say it probably was. Yeah,
2: it was really hard because I was, you know, single mum. I was raising three kids on my own. I was supporting them. I was travelling, speaking, writing, financially, of course, then the, the GFC came. Things happened. I ended up losing my house um, because, you know, I was... Trying to support three kids. And then what happened is um, I gave my TED Talk, which has now had a few million million views. And I remember sitting at home and thinking, well, now what? <laughs> you know. And I remember opening my computer and there was this email there from a man in India. Cause I mean, the great thing about TED Talks is that they go worldwide. You know, mm. and suddenly my platform is no longer just Australia, it was the world. And there was an email from this man in India and I remember reading it and it said, uh, Dear Miss Shepherd," <laughs> he said, I have had an ailment for 19 years and, and I was going to commit suicide. He said, but I saw your talk. He said, and my life starts now. Wow. And I remember thinking, I closed my computer and I thought, this is why I came back. Mm. I have to keep doing this. And so I did the craziest thing. I did what everyone would do, right? I just move overseas. <laughs> I remember I just closed my computer and... I gave everything away that I had left. I packed my bags and I moved to America.
0: How old were the kids at this point?
2: So this was, you know, sort of five years ago. So they were, you know, my son is 20, so 15. He'd moved in with his dad at that stage, my two girls. And I always say I ran away from home. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because, you know, normally it's the kids that leave. So it was me. And, um, you know, I, I went to America and I had no work over there, no money, nothing, you know, and I again, I did what I've done over and over again, which is reinvent my life and start again. And um, I've got this crazy life. And from there, I've had, you know, i got the book deal. Um, You know, Napoleon Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich. You're in the movie. I'm in the movie. I'm in the book. Um, It's crazy. Uh, This week, I'm in uh, TED Radio Hour, NPR Radio Hour, which is, you know, one of the biggest podcasts in the world. I'm the featured talk this week. And uh, Goldcast just picked up the video that's had 15 million views. Um, So suddenly it's like my story is
0: just. It's just the beginning.
2: It's, yeah, I have no idea. And what I say to people is just turn up, you know, just turn up and say yes. You know, that's all you got to do. And um, a lot of people aren't willing to to show up, but you have no idea what's going to happen, you know.
0: How much does intuition play in your life as a role? Huge part. Talk to me about that.
2: Yeah, intuition's, you know, it, it, it's a really interesting... We've all got it.
0: What does intuition mean to you? How does it show up for you?
2: It's tapping into my my higher self. Okay. It's knowing that... You Is know, it a
0: voice? Is it a feeling for you? Like, how does it appear? All of it. Okay.
2: Yeah, all of it. I've had, you know, I've had a pretty unique experience when I left my body. Yeah. You know, when I was guided through my experience. So those guides that were with me then are still with me now. And they speak to me and they guide me and they show me. And, you know, sometimes intuition can be bumping into someone, meeting someone, you know, turning on a radio, thinking about something and suddenly there's the, the song that you were just thinking about or there's a book that you meant to read or um, you pick up the phone or someone rings. I mean, it's around us all the time. Some people aren't, aren't listening. They're not looking. It's there all the time. You know, I say just stay open and, and it's through the heart. Not through the head. You know, just keep your heart open. And I I just there isn't a day, honestly, in my life that something doesn't happen that I go, that's crazy. You know, every day I wake up sort of expecting something crazy to happen, because it does.
0: Expect miracles.
2: Yeah. They're there.
0: Faith, does that play much of a role in your life? I'm gonna assume it yeah. does. Is there's it's, it's, it's it stains everywhere.
2: Yeah. Oh ab- absolutely. I mean You know, it brings me to tears all the time. You know, life is just, I feel so incredibly grateful I have. So I'm remarried.
0: Congratulations. When did you remarry?
2: I have an amazing, amazing man in my life. We got married um, in a riverbed in Kenya last year.
0: Holy smokes.
2: No, it was crazy. It was completely crazy. He's American and he's my soulmate. Oh, beautiful. And that's been, yeah, another extraordinary twist to this whole story and this whole journey. And... He, you know, we have this incredible practice. He's the most disciplined person I've ever met in my life. Uh, so it's a good pairing there. And every morning we wake up and we have a practice which we call Giving Grace and we sit with each other and we talk about the things that we're grateful for. We give thanks for the end of seasons. We, you know, we just make sure that that's, you know, that we honour our journey with each other and life is life is short.
0: How did you guys meet?
2: Sort of crazy. Um, Well, he uh, he's also a pilot as well. He's um, um, actually Stanford educated engineer originally, but uh, top shelf. Yeah, yeah. But now he's a mountain man. Know (laughs) snowboards and and uh, very disciplined. Flies and so we live in a small uh, town and the airport near us. The local. the guy that owns the airport and flies is also an MD, sent my TED Talk uh, out to everybody in his mailing list with the subject line, so you think you're having a bad day. <laughs> mm. And, um, and he, he saw that. And he's also a writer. So he wrote me this beautiful, heartfelt email thanking me for making him save his life. I remember opening up this email and thinking, he signed at Blue Skies and Tailwinds. Wow, which is actually part three of my book. So wow. I, remember, yeah, I remember reading it and going, "Wow!" It just was so beautifully written that it touched me, and I thought, I "Wonder if he's a pilot, blue skies and tailwinds." Um, so I answered, and that was it. And then a year passed, and he was writing a documentary, and we ended up meeting in America, and you know,
0: the best sparks. Just, and there there, there we
2: are. We're just you know, well done. Just meant to soulmates you know it's meant to happen it took my whole life to to meet the person that is just um yeah very special person in my life
0: so what's next for you where to from here
2: yeah well
0: or is that up, Is that all in the uh yeah, in the stars
2: it is a little up yeah, yeah because i don't know because as i said kerwin every day is there's a surprise something yeah. happens i mean it's it's crazy. I have this crazy life. I just got back from China and two weeks ago or three weeks ago, I wasn't going to China. And then suddenly the phone rings and next thing I know, I'm heading to China. Same thing. I went to Vietnam a few months ago and, um, you know, I, I've just had a request to go to, to Bangkok and speak there. And so apart from the, the jobs that are sort of set in stone in my diary, I just sort of leave leave it open and say, all right, universe, God, you know, just show me what I'm meant to do, you know, just I'm here. I just say yes.
0: And so def- is Defiant the latest book?
2: Yeah, that's the book that I'm most proud of. David right. and I worked on that together and yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, it's it's beautiful. Most the story. Oh, thank you. Absolutely I, stunning. You want to know the story behind that? Go on. Okay, so I, I had, we had this weird sort of cover for the book and the publisher rang and said, Oh, no, we don't like it. More a headshot. So I was flying to speak in Australia. I was in America and I live near Jackson Hole, right? Which is beautiful. So I found a photographer and Monday morning booked in. And, um, so Sunday night I got some sort of weird bug. And so I'm in the bathroom vomiting on the floor into a bucket. <laughs> and, um, I thought, Oh, how am I going to do this, this photo session? So I turned up, right? Really sick. We're doing the photo, we're doing the shots. I've got a bucket next to me. And so she'd go, right, okay, we've got a wind machine, you know, hair and makeup. And she'd go, right, smile, and go, smile, and they go, bleh, in the bucket. And I thought, oh, it's going to be shocking. And wow. I said, always, the moral to the story
0: always shall always up.
2: travel with a wind machine, <laughs> <laughs> you know.
0: So, what is Defiant all about? A broken body is not a broken person.
2: Well, the name of the book actually was given to me by Bruna Papandria, who's I was sitting in Reese Witherspoon's office talking to Bruna, who produced Gone Girl and Wild. And I said, I have to come up with a new name for my book. And we're going through this whole list of names. And she said, you know what, defiant, because that's what you are. And I thought about it. I went, yeah. And then again, I, I pulled up this email that I had received from the Viktor Frankl Institute of all places in Russia, Wanting to use my TED talk for the because they said I represent the defiant human spirit. Wow! Which is, and I and then I'm the book and the email I'm going yeah th- that's it and of course defi- you know Viktor Frankl of course you know, you've read the book you know we know his story surviving the Holocaust and he talks about the defiant human spirit is tapping into our spiritual selves to overcome suffering. And what I say to people is defiance is a great word. It is, you know, it means many things, but it's, it's tapping into the essence of who we are. You know, why are we here? We're here to overcome the things that hold us back from being all that we can be, this magnificence that we all have inside of us. It's, it's innate. It's who we are. You know, it's not about the externals. It's never about the externals life is always about rearranging the internals and you know when we recognize that you know that we are at our very source spiritual beings having a human experience that's that's who we are that's all we need when we know that anything is possible
0: life becomes easy
2: life becomes joyful life becomes a game
0: and so this is um when did this come out? When was this published?
2: Um, uh, just about a year ago, okay. and um, so and the
0: screenplay is being written right now.
2: Yeah, I've got someone working on a treatment right now.
0: And Margot, you... <laughs> Polo, <laughs> <laughs> you've also got another another book here, The Gift of Acceptance.
2: Well, I brought that along. Right, um, you, you might want to put it on the table or give it out. So that is oh, actually I a love the book. book. It's a ta- it's full of aphorisms about yeah. about what what acceptance is? because acceptance is actually um, I'm a great fan of um, Eckhart Tolle and Byron oh, Katie. God, yeah. yeah, so you know what is acceptance? Acceptance is accepting the isness. This has happened. okay once you accept it, then you can go now what? So you know I always say we struggle when we can't accept. we struggle when we think life is not supposed to be like that. And I go, well, who said? Of course it's supposed to be like that because it is like that. That's so it is, it it is, is what, what it, it is. is. And, you know, and Byron Katie always says, um, you know, when you argue with reality, you're only going to lose 100% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I love that little book about acceptance. It's all about, um, you know, I, I, I won't give too much of the story away, but there's a little story I tell in the beginning about how I I discovered that and a lady that I met along the way and, um, you know, one of the, I you know, I was given that gift of acceptance in hospital uh, by the girl that was next to me in the bed next to me, Maria. And for for people that have followed my story over the years, Maria was a complete quadriplegic. She had an accident, car accident. She was 18, woke up, I think, on her 18th birthday after a coma to the news that she was paralysed from the neck down. Spent her entire life like that. She the whole time i kept in touch with her we were friends in hospital in bed the bed next to each other um she never complained not once always smiled and i mean that to me was just that was defiance personified mm. you know she was she accepted that with grace and she was always asked me how i was always smiled was always happy and Wow. wow. I don't what know a gift. how Yeah, that was a gift to me. And that that is the defiant human spirit.
0: Mm. So for someone who's perhaps going through a bit of a tough time right now, what would be the best piece of advice you can give them?
2: Love the hills. Oh, I
0: knew you going to say that. <laughs> I was actually gonna say I was like steal a thunder. Yeah. I love mean, the it's, hills.
2: It's love the hills. It's the mindset, it's it's
0: it's so important, isn't it? Like learn to love the tough stuff.
2: That's why we're here. Mm. You know, that's that's we're here to to grow, to learn. We've each got our own our own lessons. You know, it's a it's a it's a classroom.
0: It is indeed. So, if people want to find out more information about you, Janine, where can they go?
2: They can all the usual, you know, usual Facebook, outlets, Facebook. Instagram, Twitter.
0: Do you got a website?
2: And a website, JanineShepherd Yeah, and so I love. I mean, I I answer every single person that emails and writes to me. I have it all my entire life, as long as it's not lost in the, in the
1: ether.
2: <laughs> in the ether. But um, I just feel honoured that I've been given this incredible gift to be able mm. to uh, reach out to people and and share and share my story. And and every person that reaches out to me has given something back.
1: That's
2: you know, beautiful. Which is we're all connected.
0: Mm-hmm. And we're all here for a reason.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And a big part of that reason is to find – a big part of the journey is to find out why.
2: Mm.
0: And then the last part of it is to do it.
2: Yeah. Give it away.
0: Give it. It is free. Janine, thank you so much for coming in. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here.
2: Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's been so much fun. And uh, we're going to hang out more.
0: Let's do it. (laughs) I'm like, You're my people. (laughs) Janine Shepard, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And do me a favor, don't forget to drop me a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear what you think. I love reading what you guys have to say. And your reviews make sure we keep creating killer content just like this. If you want to stay up to date with me and all my movements, please jump onto the website kerwinray.com and also check us out on social media at Kerwin Ray.